Our scripture this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me if you'd like. Pew Bible, it's on page 1029. John, chapter 2. I'll be starting with verse 13. This is the account of Jesus uh, clearing the temple. It is Passover. The temple was bustling with activity and, and noise and people. Uh, and it wasn't all that unlike uh, a shopping mall at Christmas, everyone peddling their wares. And uh, Jesus causes quite a ruckus, overturning tables, driving animals and people out. And John places this, interestingly, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark places it at the end of his ministry during Holy Week. It may have happened twice, but regardless of when exactly it happened, what's important is, is what was going on, and, and more importantly, what was going on in Jesus. So let's hear John's account, John 2, beginning with verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 40 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Would you uh, pray with me before I even begin? Lord, we read of Jesus' zeal for your house, the passion that consumed him. Kindle in us a renewed fire for you. Even now, Lord, may your word ignite something in each of us that needs to be ignited. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me begin this morning by asking uh, a couple of questions. What are you passionate about? What are you excited about? What What is it that gets your heart racing, beating fast. By the same token, what makes you angry? What makes your blood boil? When I was in college and seminary, uh, this was in Wisconsin, I had several classmates from Michigan, and all of them to the person was, uh, uh, I'll just say, over-the-top sports fans. I mean, like, like to the extent that I'd never seen or witnessed in my life. Die hard. I mean, they were rabid about their teams. I thought uh, Packer fans were passionate. And they would be ecstatic or miserable to live with, depending on the outcome of a particular game or a season. Never seen anything like it. Uh, And as I think about that, that's just one area of passion or interest. What is it that uh, you are passionate about? What interests you? And is it something that ultimately matters in the end? Is it 
Is it what you want your life to be about? Jesus was a man of deep passion. He was fully God and fully human. And so he was a man with emotions, healthy emotions, appropriate emotions, which included everything from righteous anger, jealousy uh, for God and the things of God. If there was anything that Jesus was passionate about, it was the kingdom of God and about opening that kingdom to others. And if there was anything that got Jesus hot under the collar... It was the way that religion, and with all of its trappings and traditions and the layers of man-made rules, got in the way of people having an authentic encounter or relationship to God. These were the things that Jesus cared deeply about. So what matters to you? What interests you? And how devoted are you to those things, to that cause, to that pursuit, or that purpose and passion? Uh, the staff here at Zion uh, was invited this last week to, uh, to a sneak peek of the National Comedy Center that will be opening uh, this summer in downtown Jamestown. It's exciting. I have to admit that I've been skeptical about like, the impact that this thing is supposed to have in our community. But after seeing, walking through it, seeing the inside, hearing what this thing is about, all I can say is that it's going to be phenomenal. It's beyond anything that I imagined. There's 35,000 square feet of venue. And it's all very extremely high-tech. When you arrive at the, at the Comedy Center in the, in the entryway, there are going to be a number of kiosks. You'll go to that kiosk, and you will enter your information in there. You will tell it uh, a little bit about yourself, what kind of humor you like. You'll even rate yourself on how funny of a person you are. Okay? And, uh, and then it will uh, issue a wristband, and uh, in, 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 all the different kinds of humor. You know, sarcasm, um, <laughs> the other kinds, dark humor, slapstick, whatever it is. So it'll give you this wristband. Maybe you'll, you'll probably indicate even some of the comedians that you like and, and, and so forth. So you'll get this wristband with your information encoded on it. And as you walk through the, the, the various parts of, of the uh, comedy center, uh, it will interact with you and it will bring up your preferences. And it works a little like Pandora. It's going to broaden your appreciation of comedy and introduce you to people that it thinks that you're going to like, okay? Exposing you to new, to new, uh, new, new ways of, of new people and new types of comedy, perhaps. And at the end, you're going to receive uh, uh, a review of your visit as well as an evaluation of where your humor level really is at. Now, I, I find all of this a little intimidating because I'm not a very funny guy. And uh, my sermons could stand a little more humor. And some of them I know you think are already a joke. But uh, there's an example of self-deprecating humor. So, but seriously, there's a place for, for humor and laughter in the communication of something as important as the good news of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. By the way, Easter this year ends up on April 1st. Did you know that? It's April Fool's Day. So you ought to expect... Uh, some jokes and some laughter appropriate for that day. I mean, after all, the resurrection is the ultimate joke. So, In the presentation at the Comedy Center, we were told that conservatively there will be an estimated 114,000 visitors a year. That's a conservative estimate. Think about that. And you're thinking, who's going to come to Jamestown to see this thing? Well, they explain to us three types of people, skimmers, swimmers, and deep divers. And each of them indicates a level of interest, I suppose, or passion level about comedy. The skimmers were described as people who might be here. Maybe they're visiting family and friends. Maybe they're dropping off uh, their, their son or daughter at college, and they've got an hour to kill. So they go to the comedy center. 
the swimmers are people who really enjoy comedy. They, they love watching comedy shows. They go to comedy shows. So, so they'll, they'll appreciate this. And then there's the deep divers. These are the people who, who are passionate about this, who, who, who are immersed in this, in this art form. And, and uh, they're, they're going to want to dive deep into all of the opportunities and experiences of this thing. Skimmers, swimmers, and deep divers. These are descriptors or metaphors uh, that could be applied to a lot of areas besides comedy. And you probably know where I'm going with this. When it comes to Christianity, to faith, and relationship with God or church, there are skimmers, swimmers, and deep divers. When you think of your own faith, your relationship to God, your involvement in church, your commitment to Christ or the priorities of Christ, how passionate are you? Would you describe your passion in terms of a pilot light? You know, it's there, it's on standby. Or is the, is the flame enough to sort of keep you warm and cozy in your faith? Or maybe there's a, a greater fighter that, that is burning in you, that is ignited in you these days, and there's something burning in you, and you're longing, you're hungering for more. Is church a box that you check off every week or once a month or, or however often you go? Or maybe you're a little more immersed. Maybe you're plugged into a Bible study or a small group. Or maybe you're serving in some capacity in the church or another ministry. Or perhaps you are investing yourself in this. Hungry for God, eager to serve, to give of yourself with a desire to drink deep. To surrender, to serve, to show up, to dig deep. To be willing to do the hard work of discipleship, learning and growing seeking and hungering for more, committed to do whatever it takes for the sake of Christ and others. Jesus was the ultimate example of a deep diver. That won't surprise you. You can't do and say the things that Jesus did. You can't go to the cross knowingly if you aren't passionate, if you aren't zealous, if you aren't determined. Even the Scripture says, you know, as it it was, it was, we think about this season of Lent, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what was coming, and he was determined. Nothing was going to get in the way of it. He, had, he knew why he had come. He was passionate to finish the work that he had come to do. Search the Gospels, and you'll find that Jesus was a very passionate man. In fact, he demonstrates a range of emotions. Joy, delight, sorrow, compassion, frustration, as well as anger. In John 11, we read of Jesus approaching the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had been gone, had already been dead four days. And you know the scripture, Jesus wept. But the text also says that Jesus was deeply disturbed. Now the translators sort of softened what's actually happening there. The Greek word is actually snorted. He's so angry that he's snorting. He's angry, he's disturbed, not just at the loss of his friend or moved by the mourners, He was angered at death itself and the separation that it brings. And as he approached Lazarus' tomb, he snorted with anger and emotion. I imagine in Jesus' tears and spit and snot and deep emotion. He's angry with death, so angry that he actually snorted. And he's tasting it firsthand with the loss of a dear friend. And with the way that it affects those he loves. Jesus is determined to undo death. And he did so through his own death on the cross and the resurrection. Just as an aside, friends, 
You are never alone in your grief. God is there, the comforter. He knows the sorrow of death. He knows the sting. He is with us in the valley of shadow and death. God has tasted it firsthand. He has gone before us. He goes with us. And Jesus promised, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is not only passionately angered by death and the separation that it brings, even more so, he is angered by anything that separates people from God. When Jesus comes into the temple courts at Passover, he is enraged by what this sacred place has become and the ways that it was cheapening and distracting people from experiencing God. It looked and sounded like a shopping mall at Christmas, a shrine to capitalism, not the house of the Most High God. Jesus actually made a whip. Can you imagine that? And drove out those selling cattle and the money changers. And he overturned their tables, scattering coins everywhere. He was passionate about God's house, but more so he was passionate about people coming into God's household. Jesus said, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? He created chaos to restore peace. It was rare, I think, for the disciples to see this kind of response or even emotion in Jesus, who was otherwise, at least from our perspective, we think of him as being pretty patient and kind and and gentle. The disciples later remembered one of the Messianic Psalms, which said, zeal for your house will consume me. What are you? What are you zealous for? Is that zeal from God? Is it serving God? Maybe religious zeal or fervor makes you a little uncomfortable, a little nervous. Sometimes our passions can be misguided zeal. I think of Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. He had lots of zeal. He had lots of passion. It drove him to uh, persecute Christians and even to kill them. He was zealous for God. In his zeal, he thought that he was being faithful to God, to God's Word, and to the faith. He couldn't have been more wrong. If our passions and zeal, even for God, aren't actually from God, they will be dangerous and destructive. We will be blinded by zeal. This is the stuff that breeds division and hatred and even terrorism. But passion and zeal that is born of God is very different. It's inspiring. It is life-giving. It draws people. It amazes people. Uh, The world and the church this past week mourned the passing of a man with great passion for God. I'm speaking, of course, of Billy Graham. But you don't have to be a preacher or an evangelist to have the kind of passion that he had for Christ or for others who don't yet know Christ. Whether you are a student in school, raising children at home, pursuing a career, earning a living, teaching, medicine, business, industry, design, service, or volunteering... If your work, your striving, your desires, your passions do not ultimately come from and return to Christ, likely you're missing the mark. And maybe maybe you're only surviving and not thriving. If we are in Christ and He is in us, then something of Christ's zeal and His passion will possess us. The Holy Spirit will give you a new heart with new and transformed desires. 
I knew a woman once whose passion was golf. She loved golf. She, she was a, a PGA pro. She taught, uh, she, she gave lessons. In fact, she had such a love, her love for the game was contagious for others. When she became a believer, her passion, her interest in golf began to wane, and she noticed it. She recognized that. She's still, she's still golfing. She'll, she's still teaching golf. But now her passion is to know Christ and to be Christ to others. In fact, she used to spend her winters when she wasn't golfing. Uh, she's, a, she's out on course in northern Michigan. When she's off during the winter, she had a home in the Outer Banks, South Carolina, on the golf course. That's how she spent her winters, just golfing. Again, when she became a believer, she became convicted. She felt like, I don't need that second house, and I have better things to do with my time. I have a higher calling. For the last 12 or more years, she spends her winters driving in an RV and in the South working for Habitat for Humanity. She loves it. She loves it. As you grow into greater Christ-likeness, you will discover that you are becoming more fully alive, more aware of the motions that stir in you. You'll find yourself loving the things that God loves, loving the people that God loves, and hating those things that God hates. The Bible says in Galatians 5.20 that the Holy Spirit will produce in you the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And with those, growing passions and desires for God that will move you to action. God will work in you the will and the desire to act according to His good purpose. God wants to turn skimmers into swimmers and swimmers into divers. God wants to take those who are afraid of the water and baptize them, immerse them in His grace, cleansing them, giving them a new identity, welcoming them into His family, clothing them in Christ, giving them His Spirit, and sending them into the world with a mission and a purpose to serve. God wants to take skimmers and turn them into swimmers. And if you will allow Him, He will turn you swimmers into deep divers. He will ignite passions and desires in you that will serve the kingdom of God. For some of you, it's been a long time since you have felt passion for God. And some of you, perhaps, have never been passionate about God. I recall Billy Graham once saying that many American Christians have been inoculated with just enough religion to keep them from getting the real thing. For how many of you is this true? You have just enough religion to keep you from catching the real thing. You're a skimmer when God wants you on the deep end. What's holding you back? What's hindering you? Is there something that is keeping your heart from being set ablaze? I honestly don't know if I'm a swimmer or a diver or just keeping my head above water some days. I love studying the Bible and theology And I love to broaden my understanding and deepen my experience of God. It's why I journal. It's why I meet with a spiritual director. And I read the Bible, as well as Christian classics and uh, also new works that challenge me to think in new ways. This is my life. 
This is my career. It's my vocation. It's my calling. And if I'm not growing, you won't be growing. If I'm not immersed in this, immersed in my relationship with God, it does not take long for the well to dry up. It doesn't take long for the passions to wane. Maybe you know what it's like to feel dry, thirsty. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The Holy Spirit is the fountain deep within us that continually refreshes and, re- and renews our commitment to God and fuels desire for the things of God. Listen, friends, God wants you to be fully alive. And he wants to transform your passions into eternal and kingdom pursuits. The place where God is calling you is where your greatest desire meets the world's greatest needs. And so our passions will take shape and form and be directed in ways that serve the kingdom if we stay true to God, if we stay tuned to God. And if you're doing this right, you won't become a religious bigot or intolerant and narrow-minded. You won't become, as Mark Twain once observed, Christian in the worst sense of the word. Your heart will not grow smaller, but larger. You will know God's amazing grace for yourself, and you will offer it freely to others. Forgiveness, patience, and kindness. And just as God's love is reckless, so your love will become more prodigal. You'll take sin seriously, but you'll also take redemption seriously. And the more mature you become, the more your life will be marked by wisdom and love. If your religious passion or zeal isn't producing good fruit, then it's not from God. Ask God to ignite something in you, to fan into flame your faith for God's glory and for neighbor's good. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are a better judge of our own hearts than we are. Where faith and hope have grown cold, ignite in us a fire. Create in us a new heart, O God, that longs to know you with a growing and earnest desire to serve you. Bring all our passions and desires under your rule that our lives, Lord, would bear witness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.